when I published the book that Dr. Cain just mentioned, Thomas Aquinas and the Philosophy of Punishment, back in 2012, I took up the difficult task of arguing to a 21st century audience that a medieval philosopher and theologian would have something meaningful to contribute to the contemporary discussion of punitive justice, both the theory and the practice of which the Middle Ages is probably the most maligned in contemporary society, <clears throat> which just uh, which is, is something that um, it seems to be commonplace in, in, in contemporary society, that if there's anything that we can be confident should be left behind in the Middle Ages, it's the medieval understanding of punishment, characterized by chiefly by theocratic barbarism and torture. So in the very opening paragraphs of the book, I felt that I have to uh, implore my contemporary readers to resist this prejudice, to give St. Thomas a fair hearing, and to consider the possibility that his pre-modern understandings of justice, morality, and the common good might shed valuable light on a modern debate that's grown stale and inconclusive. So you can imagine my surprise, therefore, when I first saw the cover art for the book chosen by the Catholic University of America Press, which, to be honest, I couldn't quite make out at first, but which, upon close examination, turned out to be nothing other than a representation of a criminal convicted of blasphemy being, being branded on the lips by the, order and, by the order of an approving and onlooking King St. Louis IX. <laughs> Unfortunately, it was too late to send it back to the, to the press, so I was stuck with it, and that's what we have now. <laughs> so... The title of my uh, talk tonight is The Moral Basis of Criminal Punishment, Thomistic and Platonic Reflections, uh, an earlier version of which went by the title of Natural Law and Retributive Justice. Uh, and so the first section of this uh, talk tonight is entitled The Plight of Retributive Justice. So in 1949, C.S. Lewis first published an essay entitled The Humanitarian Theory of Punishment, in which he argued for what he called a more traditional retributive theory over one that is solely directed to the rehabilitation of criminals and or the deterrence of potential criminals. So as Lewis argued, Whereas many have dismissed the concept of retribution as nothing more than a veil for vengeance and barbarism, it turns out upon analysis that removing retribution from our notion of criminal justice is what truly has a perverse and dehumanizing effect. Especially striking is Lewis's claim that retribution is important not just from the point of view of the law, but from that of the criminal. Once the concept of retribution is removed and we're left only with the quote-unquote humanitarian goals of deterrence and rehabilitation, he says, each one of us from the moment he breaks the law is deprived of the rights of a human being. How is this so? According to Lewis, the problem with the humanitarian theory is that it removes from punishment the concept of desert, a concept that is the only connecting link between punishment and justice. As he continues, it's only as deserved or undeserved that a sentence can be just or unjust. There's no sense of, uh, in talking of a just deterrent or a just cure. We demand of a deterrent not whether it is just, but whether it will deter. And we demand of a cure, not whether it is just, but whether it succeeds. Thus, when we cease to consider what the criminal deserves and consider only what will cure him or deter others, we have tacitly removed him from the sphere of justice altogether. Instead of a person, a subject of rights, we now have a mere object a patient, a case, 
A criminal, therefore, at the mercy of a, what Lewis calls a humanitarian system of punishment, will have his fate decided by experts in psychotherapy and sociology, rather than by judges trained in jurisprudence. Instead of a definite sentence imposed by a judge, the criminal will receive an indefinite sentence that is only lifted when the so-called expert considers him cured. Followed consistently, the humanitarian theory of punishment might impose a much more severe penalty upon a harmless but difficult to cure criminal than upon a murderer that is cured relatively quickly. The fact that such a disparity of punishments strikes decent human beings as alarmingly unfair is beside the point. To the experts, fairness is just another word for justice, a notion inseparable from the, from the belief that criminals should be punished no less and no more than they deserve. And it's precisely this understanding of desert that the humanitarian theory's apologists aim to replace. Lewis goes on to argue that the problems with eliminating retribution are even worse when we consider deterrence. Here, the eclipse of justice is even more evident. As Lewis puts it, when deterrence becomes the sole or even the primary goal of punishment, it's not absolutely necessary that the man we punish should even have committed the crime. The punishment of a man actually guilty, whom the public think innocent, will not have the desired effect. The punishment of a man actually innocent will, provided that the public think him guilty. To be sure, supporters of the humanitarian theory of punishment have argued that punishing an innocent person to achieve a deterrent effect would never be worth the risk of the general public finding out the truth. Lewis, for his part, insists that, quote, every modern state has powers which make it easy to fake a trial, and that when a victim is urgently needed for exemplary purposes of deterrence, um, that will be equally served by the punishment of an innocent victim. So in the end, it may not matter so much to Lewis how likely the above scenario is to occur in the real world, the, the punishment of an innocent person, but the mere fact that something is startlingly wrong as the punishment of the innocent, the fact that it even could be justified, even in principle, by the humanitarian theory is enough, in his mind, to discredit it. Whether we consider rehabilitation or deterrence, therefore, Letting go of the idea that criminals should be punished because they deserve it easily opens the door to punishing people far greater than what justice requires. Which one of us, if he stood in the dock, Lewis provocatively asks, would not prefer to be tried by the old, that is to say, the retributive system? To be sure, some aspects of Lewis's essay are reminiscent of Immanuel Kant's argument for retributivism, such as Lewis's complaint that the humanitarian theory of punishment uses the criminal, quote, as a means to an end, someone else's end. But Lewis is no Kantian. Much more prominent are his frequent references or allusions to natural law a much older tradition, and one that Lewis clearly intends to represent. This explains Lewis's criticism of the humanitarian theory of punishment on the grounds that it turns the responsibility of sentencing criminals over to psychologists or social scientists, rather than leaving it with judges trained in jurisprudence who, as he says, take their guidance from the law of nature. The position he lays out stands in stark contrast to the prevailing belief in modern political philosophy that the very notion of retributive justice is incoherent, the first signs of which we observe in Hobbes's Leviathan, in which we read that, quote, in revenges, men must look not at the greatness of the evil past, but at the greatness of the good to follow, 
and whereby we are forbidden to inflict punishment with any other design than for the correction of the offender or the direction of others. Likewise, in chapter 13 of his Introduction to the Principles of Morals and Legislation, Jeremy Bentham carefully applies the principle of utilitarianism, developed in earlier chapters, to the institution of punishment. In order to have any moral justification whatsoever, he argues, punishment must look forward to some identifiable good for society obtained in the future, which limits us to pursuing rehabilitation, deterrence, and the physical sequestering of dangerous criminals from society, which Bentham chillingly calls disablement. Retribution, as he sees it, looks backwards as it attempts to pay back the criminal for his crime. It is essentially, for Bentham, an outgrowth of anger and other sub-rational urges, and must therefore be suppressed rather than indulged by the law. In a very revealing footnote, Bentham identifies natural law theory as, as at least partially responsible for the bogus notion of retribution. Because in his mind, the natural feelings of resentment and hatred we feel as a response to injustice is legitimized by any theory like natural law that sees nature as somehow morally normative. As he mockingly describes the natural law defense of retribution, if you hate much, punish much. If you hate little, punish little. Punish as you hate. The attempt by modern political philosophy to eradicate retributive justice from our political institutions have led some to argue that modern liberal states are in fact incapable of truly punishing criminals because they have transformed punishment into restitution or have reduced it to a kind of social hygiene. A famous argument along these lines is made by Stanley Brubaker in an in a article called, Can Liberals Punish? Spoiler, the, the answer is no, <laughs> they can't. <laughs> it would be well to recall, however, that removing retribution from one's philosophical theory of punishment vastly predates the advent of liberal or even modern political thought. In fact, we may observe the emphatically illiberal Plato doing just this as he formulated his own penology in his famous dialogue, The Laws, his last and most extensive political dialogue that deals with the question of punishment. The Laws of Plato has long been recognized in contrast to the Republic, which sets forth Plato's idea of the simply best regime, to advance Plato's understanding of the best possible regime. That is, the best regime we may reasonably hope could come to exist among actual human beings. It is the only dialogue from which Socrates is entirely absent, although the role of primary interlocutor, usually assumed by Socrates, is filled by an, emphatic, an emphatically Socrates-like Athenian stranger who engages in an extremely long and detailed discussion of law with a Cretan named Clinius and a Spartan named Megillus. All three interlocutors are in their old age. It appears as though Plato's wish is to underscore the realism of the laws as opposed to the republic in which philosophers rule as kings when he, asks, when he has Clinius reveal at the end of book three that he's been actually appointed to a, that Clinius has been appointed to a commission assigned with the task of drafting a, a legal code for a new Cretan colony. This revelation motivates the three interlocutors to uh, all, all the more to devise laws that will work in real life and among men that may not uh, assume uh, that we may not assume display an excellent or even a very good character. In fact, one might even suggest that the laws 
very emphasis upon the rule of law is actually a concession to the real-life challenges of statecraft, challenges that are largely ignored in the Republic on account of a much younger Socrates' attempt to reveal only the very zenith of human potential. Even if it is simply better to be ruled by wise philosophers, it is more realistic to establish wise laws that will be respected even when the good rulers are in short supply. The political realism of the laws also explains the Athenian stranger's extended discussion of punishment, which has no counterpart in the Republic. Beginning in Book 9, the stranger recognizes, albeit reluctantly, that political regimes comprised of humans will always deal with unjust souls who violate the laws. As the stranger explains, quote, it is indeed in a certain way shameful even to legislate all the things we are now about to lay down in a city such as this, which we claim will be well administered and correctly equipped in every way for the practice of virtue. Even to assume that in such a city someone may grow up who shares in the wickedness of the greatest other places, so that it's necessary to have legislation that anticipates and threatens such a man if he comes into being, to lay down laws to deter these men and to punish them when they do arise, as if they are going to arise, is, as I said, in a certain way, shameful but we aren't in the same position as were the ancient lawgivers who gave their laws to heroes, the children of gods. We're humans and legislating now for the seed of humans. That's the end of the quote. Given that the Athenian stranger will have to stoop so low as to make laws for those who defy justice, however, we are given to understand that this, that, that his, that his will, sorry, that his will not be any, any ordinary criminal code. In fact, he even asserts that the establishment of punitive laws, quote, has never been worked out correctly in any way. These remarks, of course, come during the well-known preludes to the criminal code. In fact, throughout the entire dialogue, all of the city's laws have been prefaced by these preludes on the grounds that free human beings should not simply be commanded to, to behave as, uh, in, in this way or in that way as slaves, but should have the wisdom of the laws explained to them using, the stranger conspicuously adds, arguments that come close to philosophizing. As a result, the stranger must provide a theory of punishment prior to providing a criminal code. He must explain to Cleinias and Megillus the ultimate purpose of punishment in light of the city's highest aspirations and a true understanding of the human soul. On this score, the stranger does not disappoint. Punishment, he asserts, foreshadowing Bentham, must always be forward-facing. No judicial punishment that takes place according to law, he says, aims at what is bad, but for the most part accomplishes one of two aims. It makes the one who receives the judicial punishment either better or less wicked. Thus he reveals what we might call his enlightened theory of punishment, because it is exclusively devoted to curing the criminal of the moral disease that caused him to commit the crime in the first place. Retribution, therefore, has no place. The stranger's penology is thoroughly therapeutic with, unlike Bentham, moral reform of the criminal as the primary objective. The stranger's remark here cannot be fully appreciated <clears throat> without understanding the psychological basis upon which they rest. Namely, the well-known Socratic teaching that no one does injustice willingly or voluntarily, or that all moral wrongdoing is ultimately reducible to 
ignorance, a well-known Socratic teaching that I'm sure many of you are familiar with. Or that all, uh, or that all moral wrongdoing is ultimately re reducible to ignorance, just as all virtue is reducible to knowledge. This principle had already been set forth in Book 5 of the Laws, not to mention numerous other Platonic dialogues. But it's now applied to that part of the city whereupon it stands to have the greatest legislative impact, the criminal code. As a result, the stranger's prelude consistently replaces the distinction between more or less voluntary crimes with crimes in which the criminal is more or less curable. As Socrates had, to in, had insisted to Polemarchus in the Republic, true justice would never seek to inflict harm in any way. And in the same way, the stranger's approach to punishment is thoroughly benevolent, because all crime, inasmuch as it's truly unjust, flows from an ignorance as, as, to that which, as to that in which the criminal's true good consists. The only reasonable punishment is the eradication of that ignorance through instruction, that is, enlightenment. The more difficult to, to cure the ignorance, presumably, the more instruction is necessary. This line of reasoning reaches its logical conclusion, then, when the stranger insists that, for those judged to be thoroughly incurable or unteachable, the only positive recourse is the death penalty. Not, of course, as a penalty in the traditional sense, but the response of the city to, who, to, who, to, to one who simply cannot live in it. The stranger's theory of punishment, one might say, is one in which we observe the complete dominance of logos. It is entirely rooted in what logos reveals to be the true source of crime and injustice, namely, ignorance of the true good for man. Additionally, the stranger insists that if a criminal is deficient in justice, that can only be explained by the fact that he is equally deficient in logos, and so instruction, even with arguments that come close to philosophizing, is the only reasonable response. If logos is what the stranger's theory of punishment highlights, however, we may find it equally remarkable that his discussion abstracts from even eclipses another part of the soul, equally relevant to the punishing of criminals, namely, thumos. This is a part of the soul mentioned frequently in Book Nine of the Laws, often as something, when combined with ignorance, that plays a role in causing criminal behavior. But students of Plato will also remember that thumos is a critical dimension of all human souls, and is discussed in greater detail in the Republic. Translating thumos as spiritedness and identifying it as the psychological basis of human anger and righteous indignation, Plato scholar and translator Alan Bloom describes it in the following terms. Thumos is very much connected with the defense of one's own. If we take Achilles as the model of the spirited or thumotic man, we see that anger is particularly directed towards punishment of those who take away one's own. Although anger causes men to be willing to sacrifice life, it is somehow connected with preserving those things that make life possible. Now, it is the nature of human anger to seek justification. It is difficult for a man to be angry when he is convinced that what is taken from him does not belong to him, or that his losses or sufferings are somehow his own fault. Anger requires someone or something to blame. It attributes responsibility to what injures and is closely allied with a sense of justice and injustice. Perhaps the most important observations here are, are the fact that thumos is, A, deeply present <clears throat> in our pre-reflective sense of justice, and B, strongly inclined to attribute responsibility or blame to its object. Given that, not only, uh, given that, not only criminals, but the majority of law-abiding citizens 
in the city of the laws are given to thumos and its effects. The stranger's theory of punishment begins to appear in some sense hostile to the deeply held moral sentiments of the people. Most blatantly, the belief that no injustice is ever committed voluntarily is one that few people, even remotely victimized by injustice, can accept. That those who seriously harm our fellow citizens or us are merely cured with education is rejected by Thumos as an affront to justice. And the stranger's penology appears as, a, as much a cruel mockery of a criminal's victims as it is an undeserved gift to the criminal himself. Is it really wise, even, even assuming the philosophical claim contained in the stranger's prelude to the criminal law, to establish an actual penal code that contains a suppression of such a fundamental part of the human soul? The stranger's answer to this question seems to be no. In fact, the penal code that follows the prelude appears in many ways to constitute a significant retraction of the criminal, criminological theory that he provides. This, this is not to say that the stranger doubts whether his theory of punishment and the psychological ba basis of crime is true. It is to suggest, rather, however much that theory accords with reason, that it's likely, if implemented, to be quite harmful to a city inhabited by citizens subject to powerful sub-rational forces. So for example, uh, for temple robbery, a crime that would certainly provoke the righteous indignation of patriotic citizens more than any other, the stranger interestingly asserts that perpetrators are to be automatically declared incurable and put to death, which is also the fate of, the, of those convicted of treason. Following this, the stranger puts forward fairly conventional punishments for theft, a fine that is twice the value of the item stolen, or imprisonment if the thief is unable to pay. Interestingly, and in spite of the earlier claim that all crime is involuntary, the stranger now sharply distinguishes between less voluntary and involuntary killing. Less severe penalties are given for sudden crimes of passion than for premeditated murder. Presumably, the difference in penalties may still be defended under the standard of reforming the criminal where possible, but it becomes increasingly difficult to see how the punishments assigned reflect the enlightened theory of punishment articulated earlier. In fact, many of the punishments appear to serve the purpose not of enlightenment or education, but of a kind of a ritual purification or even atonement for the crime committed. In short, the penal code is far less offensive to the demands of thumos than was the stranger's prelude. We can observe this most clearly by recalling the strong tendency of thumos to attribute moral responsibility to that which harms us which coheres well with the stranger's suggestion that the city should punish beasts and even inanimate objects, presumably stones or large tiles that murder people by falling upon them from above. With these and other punishments that could have no possible rehabilitative or educative effect, it seems that the stranger has all but abandoned the principles he established at the outset and has done so precisely as a concession to Thumos and to the Thumotic men who will inhabit the city whose laws he now constructs. Again, none of this is to suggest a flaw in the stranger's or in Plato's theory of punishment. The glaring inconsistency between the moral theory and the practice of Book Nine of the Laws is no doubt itself intended to be instructive. Most of all, it reveals Plato's crucial insight into the, into the notion of retribution. As one uh, contemporary scholar uh, puts it, retribution is a kind of natural human impulse in reaction to the damage done to oneself or things one cares about. The desire to return like for like is related to the fundamental impulses of justice. 
And even if the higher aims of reform are given precedence, one must be content to channel rather than simply eliminate the need for retributive punishment. The Athenian stranger of Plato's laws recognizes this when his theoretical discussion of punishment is based upon the priority of reform, but the actual punishments that follow recognize without comment the inescapable force of retributive justice. Okay, so in moving from Plato's nuanced view of, of criminal justice to that of Thomas Aquinas, we move from that which we may call a classical political rationalism and a healthy dose of realism to a theologically grounded understanding of natural law. As I argued in, in my book, uh, Thomas Aquinas and the Philosophy of Punishment, nearly everything that Thomas Aquinas says about about punishment must be understood through the lens of natural law, which is grounded by an, by an understanding of God as the creator of the world ex nihilo, who providently and benevolently sustains that world in being. Natural law is in fact defined as nothing other than the human participation in the eternal law, which is understood by, by St. Thomas as God's providence over creation that endows each thing with the particular nature it has. So just as plants and irrational animals may either flourish or become stifled in fulfilling their natures, so also may human beings, with the enormously important caveat that our own choices ultimately determine whether we follow or deviate from the eternal law in which we participate. Hence, the natural law is also a moral law and the standard determining the goodness or badness of all human actions and institutions. These fundamentals of, of St. Thomas's natural law teaching, of course, leave open the question as to how we human beings come to know what the natural law actu actually requires. The requirements of morality are presumably knowable quite apart from divine commandments, however much those commandments may reinforce the natural law. St. Thomas is fond of quoting St. Paul's letter to the Romans. When the Gentiles who have not the law do by nature what the law requires, they are a law to themselves. And they show that what the law requires is written on their hearts. In one of the most disputed passages in, in his entire corpus, St. Thomas famously argues that the precepts of the natural law may be derived from the natural inclinations of human beings, inclinations that include the human tendency to preserve human life, to ward off obstacles to that preservation, to protect and pro to, to procreate and protect offspring, to pursue knowledge, to shun ignorance, and to avoid harming those with whom we live. To be sure, just exactly how following our natural inclinations could lead us to morally instructive precepts has been the subject of decades of debate among Thomists. And even to, be, even to begin down that road would waste precious time here tonight. It is noteworthy, however, that St. Thomas does raise an objection to his position in which the objector points out a potential problem with looking to the numerous inclinations of human nature to derive moral precepts, because that would mean that, quote, even things related to the inclination of the concupiscible faculty would then belong to the natural law. In his reply, St. Thomas interestingly does not deny that the inclinations of concupiscence belong to the natural law but adds that they do so only, quote, insofar as they are ruled by reason. This makes good sense of St. Thomas's reference to concupiscence in other places outside the treatise on law. For example, his explanation as to the sinfulness of gluttony, which consists in inordinate concupiscence, as when we eat or drink in a way that is disproportionate 
with the due end for which eating and drinking are naturally established, namely the sustaining of our physical life, life and health. Hence, we are given to understand that the precepts of the natural law are derived from natural inclinations by reason's ability to discern a kind of inner logic in the natural inclinations themselves. In the case of gluttony, this inner logic is fairly straightforward. We have a strong inclination to eat and to drink because doing so is necessary for our survival and our physical health. And so to eat or drink in such a way that is disproportionate to the natural end is a contravention of the natural law. St. Thomas argues along very similar lines in his discussions of sexual morality and other virtues and vices having to do with concupiscence and the virtue of moderation. Given, therefore, the central role of natural law and natural inclination in St. Thomas's moral thought, we should expect any discussion of the moral basis of punishment to be explained in similar terms. In St. Thomas's discussion of natural law, there just is no explicit mention of a natural inclination to punish wrongdoers. In his discussion of punishment, however, we find just this. The text is admittedly a strange one and in need of careful uh, analysis. Quote, it has passed from natural things um, and by the way, the, the, the question asked here is question, prima secundi question 87, article 1, whether the debt of punishment is an effect of sin, whether the debt of punishment is an effect of sin. Debt is not debitum, it is reatus, so like the guilt of punishment, whether the guilt of punishment is, a, is an effect of sin. And he says this in the corpus, it has passed from natural things to human affairs that whenever one thing rises up against another, it suffers some detriment therefrom. For we observe in natural things that when one contrary supervenes, the other acts with greater energy, for which reason hot water freezes more rapidly, as Aristotle states in the Meteorology. Wherefore, we find that the natural inclination of man is to repress those who rise up against him, now, it is evident that all things contained in an order are, in a, in a manner, one in relation to the principle of that order. Consequently, whatever rises up against an order is put down by that order or by the principle thereof. And because sin is an inordinate act, it is evident that whoever sins commits an offense against an order. Wherefore, he is put down in consequence by that same order which repression is punishment. And St. Thomas goes on to, to say that the political order is one of those orders that is offended by sin and therefore the political order has, uh, uh, is entitled to exercise punishment to address that, the debt. So it's, it's crucial here to note that the question St. Thomas is addressing here, again, as I mentioned, is whether there exists a debt of punishment. In other words, he's addressing the fundamental question as to whether it's true to say that certain actions bring about a deservingness of punishment upon an agent. His answer for why they do shows us the basis of St. Thomas's retributivism and appeals to what we've already seen is the, is the basis for natural law precepts, namely natural inclinations. And in this case, a natural inclination to repress those who rise up against us. This is an inclination, moreover, that St. Thomas says has passed from natural things, from things we are given to understand that have no share in reason. And although we must order these inclinations in accordance with reason, they are profoundly connected to the sub-rational life of the human person. If we investigate what St. Thomas here says in relation to his broader philosophical anthropology, it becomes quite clear 
that what he, re he refers to as the natural inclination to repress those who rise up against us is in fact the irascible appetite of the human soul. A faculty that just so happens to correspond to what Plato called thumos. The irascible faculty offers, quote, resistance against corruptive and contrary agencies that are a hindrance to the acquisition of what is suitable and productive of harm. Thus understood, the irascible faculty follows upon the concupiscible and could not exist without it, since the obstacles it fights against are precisely those which stand to, to prevent us from attaining our concupiscible desires. We are angry and indignant at what blocks us from our desires. This is why St. Thomas argues that the irascible faculty is the, quote, champion and defender of the concupiscible faculty and is expressed primarily in passions such as hatred and anger, the latter of which naturally seeks to inflict a punitive evil upon its object. The irascible faculty exists in all animals possessing a sensitive appetite, and even a semblance of it is found in inanimate things, such as fire, which resists whatever destroys or hinders its action, an example that bears a striking similarity to the one used in St. Thomas's explanation for the debt of punishment, according to which hot water freezes more rapidly. Without question, such an appeal to the natural inclinations, and particularly those emerging from the subrational, appears to play straight into the hands of Bentham's mockery of natural law justifications for punishment. If you hate much, punish much. If you hate little, punish little, punish as you hate. Of course, the argument behind Bentham's mockery, though, is that natural law theory is hostile to reason because it prefers to pursue the objects of our subrational urges and desires. But if we recall St. Thomas's account of concupiscence, we can see that Bentham's criticism notwithstanding, reason holds a place of prominence. Our desires for food, drink, sex, for instance, are guided by what reason can discern is the due end of these desires in the first place. Reason is able, therefore, to set limits on how a moral agent should pursue his natural inclinations by ordering his own ends to those of nature itself. Now, in the case of the concupiscible inclinations, these ends are fairly easy to discern. Life and health in the case of food and drink, procreation in the case of sex, but what about the natural irascible inclination to repress those who rise up against the political order? This is not so straightforward. On one hand, we might say that such inclinations are given by God simply to motivate us to protect the political community from harm. But this is, I think, much too simplistic. Punishment on St. Thomas's view is not justified merely in as much as it, as it incapacitates or renders harmless an otherwise harmful criminal. Besides this, St. Thomas repeatedly contrasts the vindication of justice by means of punishment with punishment's medicinal aspects, such as rehabilitation and deterrence. Unfortunately, St. Thomas does not leave us with a very full account of what actual good for society the punitive inclinations serve. And so we are left to speculate. I would like to entertain briefly two possible answers to this question. One answer is to say that punishment simply serves the good of reestablishing the equality of justice. And to be sure, St. Thomas himself speaks of punishment in precisely these terms on many occasions. To leave it just at this, however, strikes me as somewhat question-begging. What I mean is this. How does, pun how does the performance of a criminal act create an inequality that requires 
removal by inflicting harm upon the criminal agent. That, in essence, is what retribution is. Certainly, if we accept the goodness of private property for society, we can derive how theft would, be, would require that the property or something of equal value be returned as might be ordered in a civil court. But even if that court awarded further damages to be paid for additional losses, this would still not be punishment in St. Thomas's account. Punishment is something altogether different. To put the question differently, what can we say what can we say society has gained by inflicting harm in the form of punishment upon assailants with, within its own ranks? To say that justice requires such an infliction merely brings us back to the claim that crime produces a debt of punishment, Aquinas' argument for which referred us to the moral, referred us to the natural irascible inclinations for which we still lack an ostensible object comparable with the due ends of the concupiscible faculty, for instance. For a more fully developed answer to this question, I believe we need to move beyond the text of St. Thomas and to enlist the help of some contemporary scholars, but who still come to the question from a broadly natural law perspective. For instance, the late Walter Burns has argued that at the core of punishment's moral justification is the righteous indignation, so much a part of what St. Thomas calls irascibility and what Plato called thumos. Those who lack such indignation in the sub-rational parts of their souls, such as the anti-hero Merceau and Camus the Stranger, are morally defective because they are incapable of committing themselves to the common good as human beings. Burns conveys this point by focusing upon the irascible appetite's most punitive passion, anger. Anger, he says, is expressed or manifested on those occasions when someone has acted, when someone has acted in a manner that is thought to be unjust. And one of its bases is the opinion that men are responsible for their actions. Anger is unintelligible without that concomitant view, that men are responsible for their actions and should be held responsible for what they do. Thus, anger is accompanied by pain caused by him who is the object of the anger, but also by the pleasure arising from the expectation of exacting revenge on someone who is thought to deserve it. Anger is a very human passion, not only, because of, not only because only a human can be angry, but also because it acknowledges the humanity of its objects. It holds them accountable for what they do. Criminals, Burns says, are properly the objects of anger. They have done more than to they, they have done more than inflict an injury on some isolated individual. They have violated the foundations of trust and friendship, the necessary elements of a moral community. A moral community, unlike a hive of bees or a hill of ants, uh, are, are one whose, whose members are expected freely to obey the laws, and unlike a tyranny, are trusted to obey the laws. The criminal has violated that trust, and in doing so has injured not only his immediate victim, but the community as such. If then people are not angry when someone else is robbed, raped, or murdered, the implication is that there is no moral community, because those people do not care for anyone other than themselves. Anger is an expression of that caring. And society needs people who care for one another, who share their pleasures and pains and do so for the sake of others. The same opinion is expressed more recently by Jeffrey Murphy, a philosopher who's spent much of his early career defending retributivism of all things against the utilitarian theory of punishment and who seems to have arrived at the conclusion that the value of retribution cannot be fully defended or explained without reference to what he calls 
resentment. In a, in a chapter fittingly entitled, Two Cheers for, for Vindictiveness, Murphy says, and not three cheers, it's two, Murphy says, it's important to stress that resentment does not stand uh, simply as, emo- as an emotional testimony to self-respect. This passion also stands as a testimony to our allegiance to the moral order itself. We all have a duty to support, both intellectually and emotionally, the moral order, an order represented by clear understandings of what constitutes unacceptable treatment of one human being by another. If we do not show some resentment to those who, those who flout those understandings, we run the risk of being complicitous in evil. End of quote. Thus understood, retributive punishment is not, as Bentham had dismissed, a legitimized form of organized vengeance or hatred. It is actually a rebuke or repudiation of the criminal's crime and a reinforcement of our own commitment to the common good. Granted, God could have designed our souls in such a way as to reinforce our commitment to the common good in the wake of a crime in some other way, just as he could have designed us to procreate or nourish our bodies in some other way. But the logic of natural law leads us to follow the, nat- the, follow the human nature that we have and the natural inclinations as we can best discern them. These words, if they resonate, may give us an answer as to the purpose of the natural inclination to punish criminals that St. Thomas believes lies at the heart of retribution's true moral basis. However much he believed in the Socratic teaching that no one willingly, or disbelieved, in the Socratic teaching that no one willingly commits injustice, Plato's Athenian stranger appears willing to concede that thumos, or or irascibility, must be given its due, if not in theory, at least in practice. What St. Thomas's natural law teaching seems to affirm is that we might do more than simply put up with or allow concessions to this part of the soul. We might even embrace it upon understanding that if properly channeled by reason and within a legal and political order, it plays a crucial role in safeguarding the common good, not only by deterring crime or sequestering dangerous people, but by giving expression to and reinforcing that common good itself. Thank you very much. Thank you.